you guys feel free to take your seats. So tonight, we're going to continue our series through the book of Revelation. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, um, would you go ahead and turn with me to Revelation chapter 12. So while you're doing that, I want to tell you about um, one of my, my favorite traditions that I had while I was in high school. So when I was in high school, me and one of my really good friends at the time named John Will, me and John Will, we would go um, to the, the midnight premiere every time there was a new Marvel movie. After we'd gotten our license, right, that was like our, that was our thing. So anytime there was a new Marvel movie, we would go watch the premiere, and it would be awesome, right? Like, that was our tradition. And I know Marvel, it's like, it might not be as good anymore, but at that, this, that was the phase where, like, man, Marvel was it. Like, this is good stuff. And so I remember it all built up to, like, the movie, Avengers Endgame, right? You've, I hope you've seen that movie. If not, you're missing out. Go watch it. It's incredible, right? So it all built up to, to, to that movie. And one of my favorite scenes is, one of my fav- is my favorite superhero, Captain America, right? There's, there's this scene where Captain America is standing against all of Thanos' army. Like, it is this one dude and an entire army. There should be a picture that pops up. Like, you got one dude and just a whole army, and as much as I love Captain America, like, he's a dog, but I'm putting all my money on Thanos and his army there, right? Like, it is, a, it is obvious who's winning this fight. If you put one dude, like, and he's not even got, like, Thor's power. Like, this dude, he's just, like, super strong, right? And he can't, like, what is he going to do against that? Like, I would put all of my money on, on, all, on Thanos' army. And, like, that is a mismatch of all mismatches. But tonight, we're going to see in our text that there is a, we're going to have a picture that is even more of a, of a unfair, of a mismatch. We're going to see that we have a, a dragon that is vicious, that is cruel, coming for a woman who is in labor. Like, this is, this is serious. Ready to devour this woman, ready to devour the child of this woman, and this is the ultimate picture of vulnerability. And so this looks like this is going to be the easiest win in the world for the dragon. The odds are stacked against the woman. But the dragon, we're going to see, is ultimately no match for the baby that is born. And, and this allows the woman to hold fast to God, to be nourished. And ultimately, our point tonight is that, is that it looks like God's people will be crushed. But God promises to nourish us through every single hardship. So let's read from Revelation chapter 12. We'll read verses 5 and 6, and then we'll, can, we'll walk through our whole text. So Revelation chapter 12, verse 5 and 6, they say this. She gave birth to a male child, one who, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Let's pray one more time. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. We know it is true. We trust it to be true. Lord, I, I just pray for tonight as we walk through um, this, this text in Revelation chapter 12. Lord, would you... Um, speak through me. Would, you, would it be your words, not mine? Would you prepare the hearts of, of the students in this room um, to receive your word, to live out your word, and to be comforted by your word? 
Um, Lord, I pray just that, that you would work tonight and it would be um, so clearly a work or work of God. Um, would you comfort us by your word tonight? We love you and it's in your son's holy and precious name that we pray. Amen. All right, so if you've been with us, right, we've been walking through the first 11 chapters of Revelation up to this point. And so if you, if you were here, especially the past three weeks, you know, Chase has, has walked us through the, the seven trumpets of tribulation, right? So in the last three sermons, we've seen these seven trumpets. And um, just to summarize what happened, right? So you had these trials and tribulations that the church is going to face, you had brokenness of the world around us and, and the true hopelessness that unbelievers have. And then you had the church enduring harsh persecution, but holding firm. And then it ended with the seventh trumpet, where the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ. Where the, the new heaven and new earth is here, like, it's done, right? So the obvious question is, like, if we're in, like, new heaven, new earth, like, what comes next? Like, what, what happens after that? And so this is where we see the structure of Revelation. And we've talked about it a little bit, but just to be clear, Revelation is not chronologically linear. So what this, what this means is that if you read Revelation 1, and then 2, and then 3, and then 4, and then 5, and then 6, all the way up to chapter 22, this doesn't mean that it's going to happen um, exactly chronologically as you read it. But how it's set up is there's cycles. So there's actually seven cycles where we're taught the same thing, and the, the same timeline, the same story, the same picture from different vantage points, from different views, emphasizing different things seven different times. So, we, so chapter 12 is starting a new cycle. So we're, we're going back. So we're starting over and, and we're going to emphasize more specifically spiritual warfare in this week and in the couple weeks to come in this cycle that we see. The spiritual warfare, the things that are going on behind the scenes that we don't see, but the reality of spiritual warfare going on in our, in our, in our world and, and, and in the spiritual realm. And so the first thing that, that we're going to see tonight in our text is that simply that the odds are stacked against God's people. The odds are stacked against God's people. Like it's going to look like, like God's people have no chance, no shot to win. It's going to be an easy, easy dub for, for Satan and his, and his um, demons. And it's going to look like there's no chance God's people win. So let's read verses 1 and 2, and then we'll, we'll break down some of these things. So, so reading in chapter 12, verse 1, it says, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains, in the agony of giving birth. So we have a few symbols here in, in verses 1 and 2. The most obvious and, like, the, the biggest one that we have to answer is, man, who is this woman? Like, who is this woman? What does she represent? Is this a literal woman? Is, like, can we pinpoint who this is in history? Or is this um, symbolic of something larger? And so there's been many, many different interpretations of this woman over time, right? There's been some who say this is Eve, right? The, the wife of Adam, the first woman. Some say this is Mary, the literal mother of Jesus. There's a lot of other interpretations from different beliefs, different a lot of different places, but I believe each, each of these takes take it, are far too literal and take a far too li- literal reading of this text. And I think what this woman is, is actually symbolic of what we, what we would call the believing messianic community. So that's a big term, believing messianic community. That simply means everyone who is trusted in the Lord from the old covenant and the new covenant. So everyone who's trusted in, in the Lord 
from the Old Testament, the New Testament. So from the beginning of time up until the end of time, everyone who is trusted in the Lord. That's who I think this woman is representing. It's representative of all of God's people. And I believe we can positively back this up. Like there's, I'm not just pulling this out of nowhere. There's proof for this. Notice the description of the woman. She's clothed with what? The sun. She has the moon under her feet and is wearing a crown of 12 stars. Now, this isn't the only place, this isn't the first time in the Bible that we've seen these exact same descriptors. We've seen this before, specifically um, back in Genesis 37. So I'll have it on the screen, and essentially what's happening here is this is Joseph. If you know anything about, um, about Genesis, about the Old Testament, you have this guy Joseph, who's a son of, of Jacob, one of the 12 sons, and he's... He's in this time where he's having all these dreams um, that are being interpreted in different ways. And so this is one of his dreams that he has. Um, so if we, if we look in Genesis 37, verses 9 through 11 should, be, should pop up, and let's read them. It says, then he, then he, being Joseph, dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when he, when he told it to his father... And to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. So what's going on in Genesis 37 through 39 through 11? So we see that Joseph, he has this dream. And he, he sees that the sun, the moon, and these 11 stars are bowing down to him. And he's, so he's like, what does that mean? So his father interprets this as the sun, the moon, and the stars. He interprets it, right? He responds and he says, shall I and your mother and your brothers bow down to you? So he interprets the sun, the moon, and the stars as himself, as, as Jacob, the, also known as Israel. His name was changed to Israel, his wife, Rebecca, and then his, the 11 brothers. Now you'd be saying, all right, but in Revelation, there's 12 stars. Who's the 12th star? We see Joseph is the 12th brother, is the 12th star. So what this is representative of, we see that the people of Israel have been given this title before of the sun, the moon, and, and 12 stars, right? So, and we can confidently say that the woman, because of these descriptors, because of what we're going to see throughout the rest of our text, is, is God's people. It's not a specific person. It's not... Um, Mary, it's not Eve, it's not some, some woman throughout history. No, this is representative of all of God's people from the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And so to tie this together, right, the woman is representing God's covenant people. That's all you need to know for tonight, right? We can dive into the theology, we can dive into a lot of it at a separate time, but what you need to know tonight for our text is that this is representative of God's people. Now notice some things about the woman, it says the woman is pregnant. Now, not, she's not just like four or five months pregnant. It's not like, oh, we just had the gender reveal party. No, like this woman is in active labor. Like she is having this baby, right? So she is crying out in birth pain, right? She's crying out in birth pain. And I see this pregnancy and birth pains. She's, she's pregnant. She has these birth pains. And I see that there's a twofold meaning here. There's two, kind of a double meaning between these two things. First off, that, that she is pregnant. Let's think about that. Um, there's been a promise from the beginning uh, of time, from the time that mankind fell in Genesis chapter 3, when man chose to sin, 
there was a promise that in Genesis 3.15, there was a promise that there would be a son who would crush the head of the serpent, who would redeem his people. There's been a promise that there would be this Messiah to come. There would be a Christ to come, right? And so the language of Genesis 3.15 is that the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman, will crush the head of the serpent. So the idea of the woman being pregnant is pointing to this idea, that, hey, this is the son. Like, she's pregnant with the, the one we've been waiting for, um, this, the, the one we've been waiting for will come from God's people. And so the one that they've been waiting for is, is about to come forth into the world. Um, the one who will redeem his people. So that's what the, the pregnancy idea here is. And then we have birth pains. So that word for birth pains in the Greek is really interesting. Nowhere else in the New Testament is it simply describing um, like the pain of labor, the pain of going um, through birth pains. But it's actually used... Uh, multiple other times, like 15 to 20 other times in the New Testament. And every single one of those times, it's referring to suffering, to torment, to trials, to tribulations. And in most of those, those are inflicted by, um, by, by satanic forces, by demonic forces, by, by spiritual forces. So this pain, this birth pain, this suffering, I think it has more to do with um, persecution, with trials, with tribulations, with troubles that we have as a believer than just the physical pain of birth. And so this is representative of the trials and tribulations that take place, um, that, that God's people go through, right? And so um, there, there's multiple times in the Old Testament whenever the, this word birth pain is used. And so in the Old Testament, when birth pain is used, it's, it's referring to whenever Israel, they were, they were in the promised land, they were in the land of Canaan, um, you know, in, in the good land, flowing with milk and honey, but then they were taken into captivity by Babylon, and all throughout the, the prophets, they described this time where they were taken into captivity, they were going through all these hardships, all these difficult times, they were described as birth pains, right? And so this is representing the, the troubles, the persecution, the torment that God's people face from the Old Covenant into the New Covenant. And so we have this picture of pregnancy, meaning like there's, there's a son to come, there's one to come. And then we have this idea of birth pain, being that there's going to be troubles, there's going to be tribulations, there's going to be trials, there's going to be hardships as, as God's people. So we've developed, right, this first picture in our, uh, in our text. We've talked about the woman, who she is. We've talked about the, the pregnancy, the pain. Now we get to the, the second sign. The second sign is all about the dragon, which is a scary, scary topic. Um, it's a daunting view but let's read verses 3 and 4 and really break down what is this dragon? Who is this dragon? What is he doing? So let's read in verse 3. It says, And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns um, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. So again, obvious question. Right, we said, who's the woman? Obvious question, who's the dragon? Like, who is this dragon that's, representing, that's represented here in Revelation 12? Well, if we keep reading, which um, we're only going to go through the first six verses of chapter 12 tonight, but next week we're going to finish chapter 12. And in, in verse 9, we get the answer. It is clear and obvious who this dragon is. So, 
chapter 12, verse 9, it says, And the great dragon that was thrown down, so this is the dragon that we've seen, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. So if there was any confusion about who the dragon is, like who is this dragon? It's Satan. It's the devil. It's the deceiver of the whole world. Like He uses every single name that you could possibly think of. Like If you've only heard of the devil's name once, you might think like, oh, he's the serpent. Or, you know, oh, I know him as the devil. I know him as Satan. I know him as the deceiver of the whole world. He's like, he's all, like all of those are about the same being. It's about the same person. The dragon, the, the devil, the Satan, these are all referring to, to Satan himself, right? And so he's pictured with, with seven heads. He has ten horns. And this is really emphasizing the fullness of his oppressive power, how he's, how he's um, making war on the saints, how he's um, give, troubling the saints, his oppressive power on God's people, right? So we get two, two examples of his actions. We see what he does in verse 4. There's, there's two things that he's doing in verse 4. So the first one, if, if you look, it talks about how his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. So most of you might read this and think, oh, this is probably referring to, you know, when Satan revolted against God, he, he swept down the angels that were with him, they became demons, they revolted against God. This is this, um, this battle against God that happened a long, long time ago before the world started. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say that while reading it this way, this is, a, this is the common reading. This is what most people, just without studying the text, if you're just reading it, would probably say, oh yeah, I've probably grown up thinking, thinking these things. This is probably the take that you would have. And while, it doesn't, while believing this doesn't change the point of the text, the point of the text is going to stay the same whether you believe that or not. I think that it's referring to something different and really filling out the point that this is this is Satan persecuting the church. This is Satan troubling believers, troubling God's people. And there's a few reasons that I say that. I'm not just pulling this out of nowhere. I think because of God's word, we can believe that this is not referring to Satan revolting against God, but we can say this is actually Satan making war on the saints. This is Satan um, troubling the saints. And so why do I say that? So I'll summarize quickly why I see it differently. And I think it's actually... Um, I think it's based in, in, in our own text, right? We've seen, he, he's sweeping down the stars. So a lot of people would say, hey, these stars are, are the angels. We've actually seen the word stars in our text already, right? If you look in verse one, we've seen the word stars, right? You had the 12, the crown of 12 stars. And so who were the 12 stars in, in chapter one? Well, it was God's people, right? These are God's covenant people. And so as we're reading, I think it's, it's, it's um, reasonable that as we say, hey, we've already seen stars are representing God's people. It's reasonable to continue that thought of, hey, stars three verses ago meant God's people. Three verses later, it probably still means God's people. And so if that doesn't quite convince you, we, can, we have further proof. First of all, it, how many? is it? It's a third of the stars. Say, or, um, Chase, right, he labored a couple weeks ago defending why, what, is, what does the third mean? What is the third? The, the third is representing God's people. The third represents God's people. And, and he went back to Jeremiah. He went back to the Old Testament and in, into chapter 9, 10, and, and 11. All throughout the trumpets, we see who is the third. The third is God's people. So we have that stars have already been mentioned. We see that the third is representative of God's people. And then in Daniel chapter 8, um, there's a prophecy about something known as the little horn. It throws, 
it throws stars down and tramples on them, right? It's, it's trampling these stars. And later in Daniel chapter 8, the interpretation of this dream reveals that trampling of these stars is against the saints, which are believers, right? And so we have Old Testament proof, we have proof from our passage, and we have proof from throughout Revelation. And so I think it is, we can confidently say that this is, this is not referring to a revolt against God. This is not referring to um, Satan going against God and making war against God. But this is actually Satan persecuting the church. This is Satan persecuting God's people, doing anything he can to get God's people to reject him. And so while this first action, right, it might be up for debate. You might um, have different sides. And, and we can talk more and more about that. But I want to focus more on his second action. I want to take, take a deeper look into what is the second action that he does. It says, And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. So his second action is, is that he's waiting for the son to come. He's waiting for this child to come. He's waiting to devour this child as he is born. Like, why? Why is Satan doing that? Like, that's, that's weird, Right? Why is Satan waiting to devour this child? Well, Satan knows that there's been this, this promise from the beginning that there will be one, the, the one from the seed of the woman, will crush the head of the serpent. That's him. He's the serpent. He knows that there's going to be this one who's going to crush his head, who's going to destroy him utterly. So Satan's going to do everything in his power to do what? He's going to do everything in his power to, to get rid of that son, to do anything to avoid being defeated by that son, to do anything to not get his head crushed, right? That is what Satan's goal is. And we can see how this plays out, right? It says as, he's, like, as soon as he's born, he's there to devour it. Well, let's think about Jesus's life, right? We just came off the Christmas season, so I hope the, the Christmas story, Jesus's birth, is, is fresh with you. If you remember, Jesus was born, he was born in Bethlehem, and then not, not long after he was born, the, the king of the, of the region, Herod, what did he do? He sent out, uh, well, he was scared that there was going to be another king. He heard the king of the Jews is being born. So he sent out a decree that all the, the infant, all the boy, um, the, the baby boys in Bethlehem were to be killed, right? And I think that that's not just random. That's not just coincidence. That's not just like, huh, random timing. No, that's the, that's the work of Satan using using powers of this world to deceive, using powers of this world to do everything he can to destroy the seed of the woman, to destroy the son who is to come, to destroy Jesus. And, and thank the Lord that the Lord is sovereign, that the Lord um, knows exactly what Satan was going to do, and, and he, um, he diverted Mary and Joseph to Egypt, and, and all of these different things happened. But we see Satan is doing everything he can to devour this child, so we've seen the symbols, and we've broken down what they mean. But, and, and we've, so we've seen, like, this is what these symbols mean. This is what um, they, they represent. But don't miss the, the overall picture, right? So they are symbols, and they mean something. But also, the overall picture is important. So while this is not representative of a literal woman, this is representative of God's people, I think we need to see the picture. That you have a pregnant woman who's, who's, waiting, who's, who's giving birth in birth pains, and you have a dragon. Like, this is the picture of vulnerability, right? Like, I have, uh, praise the Lord, I've never gone through labor pains and won't have to. That's a good thing. Um, but from everything I know about it, it is not enjoyable. Like, not a good time from everything I've, I've heard. I've, 
I'm in nursing school, so it's brutal from everything I've heard. Like, not, not, not a good time. And so I've never heard a story of, like, a woman who's middle, middle of labor, and, you know, she's, like, pushing out this baby, and she's like, hey, everybody, let's take a second. I'm going to make this phone call. I might go to the store. I might fight this dragon, you know, do these little things. No, like, when a woman is giving labor, she's got one thing on her mind. It is giving labor. It's bearing this child. And so you have this, this picture of an absolutely vulnerable woman and, and a dragon, a terrifying dragon waiting to devour this woman, waiting to devour this child to come. Like, that is a picture of vulnerability, and 10 times out of 10, I'm taking the dragon in that situation, right? Like, it looks obvious who's going to win. But here we get the, the best part, that, that this baby to be born is no ordinary baby. This baby to be born is, is, is very, very different. He's special. This baby is the deliverer. This baby is the deliverer. So let's read verse 5. She gave birth to a male child, one who, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. So here in verse 5, we have a male child who is born. Right? This is no ordinary boy. This is no... Um, this, this son is the one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, right? That's what it says. What is that based in? What is the rod of, what is the rod of iron? What does that mean? Well, it's straight out of Psalm 2. Straight out of Psalm 2, which is all about the, the Messiah's reign as king. So Psalm 2, 7 through 9, it says, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage. And the ends of the earth your possession you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So Psalm 2, it's all about, there's this anointed, right? anointed one, right? We've talked about there's one to come, the anointed one to come. It is all about the anointed one who is to come. Psalms 2's central point is that God's anointed will rule. And, and this is none other than Christ. Like This is Jesus Christ himself. And he is the one who will rule. Jesus came as a baby. He lived a, a perfect life, totally sinless, totally holy. He died as the propitiation to, to satisfy the wrath of God. And then he rose from the dead, the dead to totally defeat sin. So this is Jesus. There is no one else who can deliver. There is no one else who can save. There is no one else who, who could possibly save this woman from, from the terror of this dragon. But it is Jesus who is the only deliverer. Let's read the end of, of Psalm 2. The very last verse in Psalm 2, it says this. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So this is about Jesus. This is about King Jesus reigning. And notice at the end, in Psalm 2, verse 11, there's two options. You got two options. Either he will be angry with you, why will he be angry with you? Because you've chosen to be satisfied in yourself. You've chosen to be satisfied in your sin. You've chosen to be satisfied in your status. You've chosen to be satisfied in anything other than him. And what's the result? What does it say the result is? The result is that you will perish and suffer judgment of your sin for all eternity. You will perish in the way. Or, option two, you take refuge in this king. You take refuge in Jesus. 
And, and the result of those who take refuge in Jesus is that they are blessed. Now, to be clear, blessed does not mean that you're going to have all the money in the world. Blessed does not mean you're going to have all the health, wealth, prosperity. Like, that is not what blessed means. But you know what blessed means? Blessed means that you have Christ. Blessed means that you have the promise of eternity with God. You have a new life. That is the blessing provided for those who seek to take refuge in Jesus. So I don't know where each of you are at tonight. This is very practical. Some of you might truly be taking refuge in Christ, sitting under the wings of Christ, trusting in him with your whole life. If that's you tonight, continue trusting in Christ. Give him every single part of your life. Seek, seek to, to kill the sin in your life. Seek to live holy. Seek to honor Christ. Seek to live like Christ. Continue to do that. So for those of you who are, who are truly taking refuge in Christ, continue in that. Continue in that way. But, the, but I know that there are some of you in this room tonight that have not submitted to Jesus. There are some of you who have not trusted in Jesus, who have not heeded this warning. See what the warning is. The warning is that the wrath of God will be against you. So I plead that you find true refuge and satisfaction in Christ. Because whatever you're trying to find satisfaction in, whatever you're trying to be pleased in, whatever you're trying to, to, to prove, man, it is not going to work. I urge you, don't let another day go without repenting and trusting and taking refuge in Christ. Don't leave here tonight without taking refuge in Christ. Don't, don't go another minute without repenting and giving your life to Christ because the end, if you do not give your life to Christ, if you do not submit to Christ, if you do not trust in Christ with everything that you are, the end is that you will perish in the way for all eternity. But if you repent and trust in Christ and, and find your soul satisfaction in him, you will be blessed with Christ himself. So that might look different for some of you tonight, whether that's um, finding your leader, finding myself, finding Chase, finding Maggie, whatever it is, finding someone and having a conversation being like, I am not taking refuge in Christ. I'm finding my satisfaction in anything else that's not Christ. Like, I, I hope that if that's you, you are convicted and, and your heart is wrestling with that right now. So I plead with you to trust in Christ. So, so verse five, we have this idea of the Psalm 2 reign of Jesus, right? Who he is reigning in, in the beginning, he's born. And then in the end of, of verse 5, we see that this child was caught up to God and to his throne. So I think what we're seeing, we're seeing a like one verse snapshot of Jesus' life, right? He's born, he's the king, and, and he um, ascends up to, with God. And so I think that's very, very clearly talking about after Jesus has resurrected from the dead, after he's risen from the grave, what happens? He, he lives for, for a, a period of time on earth, and then he ascends into heaven to be with God, right? Until he comes back and until he returns again to usher in the new heaven and the new earth. So verse five, we have like a one verse snapshot of Jesus's life, right? He's born, he's the king, and then he's ascending into heaven. And so Christ has left the earth, he's, he's ascended into heaven, and so that the begs the question, and how in the world is this church gonna get through every day without Christ? Like, imagine being one of those 12 disciples. Imagine being one of those people who walked with him day by day. And you've been walking with Christ for three years at this point, and, and you've seen him do miracles, you've seen him do all these incredible things, and then he ascends into heaven, and, and you're still on earth. And you're like, what in the world do I do? Like, 
how do you, where do we, what do we do? Like, how, I wouldn't even know where to start if I was one of those disciples. But luckily, Christ didn't just leave us, right? He didn't just leave us and say, hope you figure it out, like, hope you're okay. No, we see that the church is actually given everything that she needs until Christ returns. The church is given everything she needs until Christ returns. And so we see this in, in verse 6. It says, And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. So the point of this last section is that the church is going to be nourished, right? They're going to be nourished. The woman, representative of God's people, the church, is being nourished. Before, before we dive into this idea of being nourished, and that's like our, our super practical, like, be nourished. Before we dive into that, there, the, there's a question of like, what in the world are these 1,260 days? Like, that is an oddly specific amount of days. And, and Chase alluded to, alluded to it a little bit last week with our, our text through um, Revelation chapter 11. We had this uh, 1,260 days. We had the 42 months, the three and a half years. And so I'm going to give a, give a little bit of um, basis as to what these are. So this is what, what I believe this is and what I think Scripture teaches that, that these 1,260 days are is the church age. This is the time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. This is the time we are living in now. Like you and I are in these 1,260 days. And why do I say that? Um, and this is going to be based in, in prophecies in Daniel and other sections in Revelation. Um, and so, 1260 days, 42 months, three and a half years. These are all the same amount of time. Like, three and a half years is 42 months. 42 months is 1260 days. These are all representative of the same thing. These are representative of the time between Jesus' first and second coming. So, Daniel 9, 24 through 27, gives a prophecy about 70 weeks and it's going to be very helpful for us in our understanding of, of the times that we've discussed. So, um, we have a prophecy about seven, 70 weeks. Like, um, so, don't get stuck in the weeds. I'm going to highlight the key points that you need to know that, that's going to, to help us understand what these 1260 days are. So, Daniel 9, verse 24. It says, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks, and for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in troubled times." So the, the key here, like there's a lot of words, there's a lot of things going on. The key is, what are the purpose of these 70 day, or 70 weeks? What are the purpose of these 70 weeks? Well, it, it gives us, there's six purposes. Finish transgression, to end sin, atone for iniquity, bring in everlasting righteousness, seal both vision and profit, and anoint a most holy place. Right, those are, those are, some, big, those are some, some big important things. So hold on to this, this purpose, atone for iniquity. That's like full payment for sin and to bring in everlasting righteousness. That's, that's purity, righteousness, goodness that will never end. So the purpose of these 70 weeks is to bring in, usher in those things. And in verse 25, we see that this comes about by the coming of an anointed one. Right? That word's come up multiple times in multiple of our different sections of our text. Right? An anointed one. The anointed one from Genesis 3. The anointed one from Psalm 2. The anointed one, the son here in, in chapter 12. 
That's what this is talking about, the anointed one, right? So this is about Jesus. There's an anointed one who's going to come, who's going to bring, bring these things about. And so this prophecy is about Jesus coming to atone for iniquity to bring in everlasting righteousness. And here's where we get those numbers um, that are going to represent the church age. So reading in verse 26, it says, And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of, of the prince who is to come, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate, until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. So again, there's a lot of things there. Let's not get, I don't want us to get stuck in the weeds, but I want us to see the main point. So, Pretty much all commentators agree that a week in this, in this 70 weeks is representative of a seven-year time period. A week is representative of a seven-year time period. And we see that at the end of the 69th week, the anointed one, right, who we established as Jesus, is cut off. An anointed one will be cut off at the end of, a 60, of the 69th week. And so can you think of a time when Jesus was cut off, when he was forsaken, Right? I hope that, that brings in, into mind when he was on the cross, what are the words he cries out as he's on the cross? He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right? He was cut off from, the, from, from God, his father, because he was taking the full weight of, of sin, the full wrath of God. That's what he was taking. And so when Jesus took this full weight of the wrath um, that, that we deserve, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so this is that, that being cut off. This is the anointed one being cut off. And, but then it says that, that the last week, Jesus, the anointed one, will make a strong covenant with, um, in which sacrifice is ended. So this sounds exactly like what Jesus came to do, right? He came and he established the new covenant. That, and what does the new, new covenant no longer require? It doesn't require you to sacrifice the blood of, of, of bulls and goats and, and sheep and, and lambs because, as, as Hebrews tells us, that the blood of bulls and goats can never atone for sin, can never pay for sin. But this new covenant is founded upon the blood of Jesus, which has the full power to take away sin. So that's the time we're living in now. We're living in this new covenant era. We're living in this church age. But notice specifically in Daniel 9, it says that this, this time period is going to happen for half of the last week. Well, what's half of a seven-year time period? It's three and a half years, 1,260 days. It's 42 months. So John, the author of Revelation, he knows his Old Testament. He knows these numbers. He knows what they're symbolic of. And, and he's not just re, like throwing out 1,260 days because he thought it'd be a cool number because this, you know, whatever it is. But he knows that this is representative of, of the church age, of the time in between when, when Christ first came and in between when he's his second coming. So that's why we can confidently say like this is the church age. And so, I might have lost you there. That was a lot. But I think we had to, like, there's going to be questions about, like, why is that the church age? And that is some scriptural basis. There's some more that we could go through. But see the main point. The church is going to be nourished in this time period. God's people are going to be nourished in this time period. Right? Revelation 12, 6, again, it says, The woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which he is to be nourished for 1,260 days. So this verse, it is about us. It is about God's people. It is about 
1260 days are the days that we're living in. You are living in the church age. You are living in the time in between Christ's first and second coming. This is, this is for you. So, so take these words seriously. It says you are in the wilderness. Like, what is the wilderness? The wilderness is not safe. The wilderness is not a safe place. It's, it's full of troubles, struggles, trials, persecutions, tribulations, difficulties that we face on our way to the promised land, on our way to eternity. The wilderness is not safe. But, but remember that whenever the Israelites were saved from Egypt, whenever they were, they were saved through the Exodus, they were, in, they were on their way to the promised land, but they were, they were in the wilderness for 40 years wandering, where it's not safe, there's difficulties, there's trials. But what's the best part of that story of Israel in the wilderness? It's that God provided manna and quail for them. God provided for them. God nourished them. God, God gave them what they needed to continue on. So we're in the wilderness, and before we enter heaven with our Lord, we go through trials and persecutions. If, if, you have, if you've been coming for Revelation, you know that almost every week it's been brought up, right? You as the church are going to face trials, you're going to face persecutions, you're going to face hardships. Life is going to be hard as a believer on this earth. Why? Because you're in the wilderness. Like, the wilderness is not safe. But you have been nourished by God. Satan will prowl around like a roaring lion and, and scheme against you. He'll scheme against the church as a whole. But do not lose heart because the Lord has promised to nourish you. He has promised to satisfy you. Through your suffering, he has promised to give you the satisfaction that your soul needs. So through all the struggle, God will nourish you. God satisfies his people. And so how does the Lord satisfy his people in the wilderness? Quickly, I'll summarize five ways. And these, I'll, I'll fly through these. How does the Lord satisfy us? How does the Lord nourish us? First and foremost, we have Christ. We have, we have Christ, which means we have salvation. We have his righteousness. The righteousness of Christ is granted us. If you have repented and trusted in Christ, you have the full righteousness of God. Your sin is, is wiped away. Your sin was put onto Christ, and you are now righteous. You are no longer a sinner, but you are a saint. And that, that is nourishment. That is our comfort. That is how we are satisfied. We are satisfied in Christ, in his righteousness, not our own. So if you're trying to be satisfied in your own righteousness, in your own self, in your own works, it won't work. You can never work hard enough for it. But Christ has already done it all. How else, how else are we nourished? We're nourished with the promised Holy Spirit. We, we've been given... The, the, the person of God, the person of the Holy Spirit to dwell within us. So whenever, as the disciples probably would have been scared when Jesus left, what was the comfort? Jesus said, I'm giving you something better. I'm giving you the Spirit. I'm giving, I'm giving you God dwelling within you. Like that is a comfort. That's how you are nourished. That's what leads you, what guides you, what, what helps you make decisions, what helps you um, fight sin, fight suffering, continue to pursue Christ even when it's hard. He's given us the word, the Bible, to show us the truths that we constantly need to be reminded of, that the Lord is sovereign, that he's working out all things for, for, for his good, right? He's working and doing something in the trials. He's doing something, and that there will be an end in the new heaven and the new earth where there will not be any of these trials, there won't be any of these persecutions, and the Lord nourishes us through prayer as we commune with our Heavenly Father, as we as we as we give him our struggles, as we come before him and confess our sin and, and walk with him daily, 
And the Lord nourishes us by a community of believers, right? You need each other. You need the church. You need to be, to be nourished, to be satisfied in Christ by encouragement through believers around you. So, are you being nourished by the Lord? As you go throughout your life, there are going to be daily hardships. There's going to be difficulties. There's going to be hard times. Why? Because we're in the wilderness, and the wilderness is not safe. The wilderness is dangerous and difficult. But the Lord has promised to satisfy us, to nourish us. So, whatever you're facing, whether it's backlash from from living out your faith, whether it's just, just hardships, whether it's just troubles going on in your life, whatever it is, where are you being nourished? Where is your satisfaction? Is it in yourself? Is it in the world? Is it in school? Is it in sports? Is it in your knowledge? Is it in your, your status? Whatever it is, if it's not in Christ, it's, it's nothing. So you have that, or you can be satisfied in the only one who can truly satisfy you, and that's the Lord Almighty whose love is better than life. So it looks like Satan has the win, like easily, right? It looks like Satan is going to demolish us. It looks like the dragon has the easiest win over this pregnant woman who's in, in birth. It looks like an uphill battle. But when Christ came as a baby, he came as our sin deliverer and our soul satisfier. So hold on to the Lord. Be nourished. Be satisfied in God, not in this world. So even when it's hard to stay faithful to Christ, remember the words of Paul to the Corinthians. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. To hold fast, because glory beyond all comparison is coming if you're satisfied in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Father, we thank you for your word that is true. Lord, we praise you for for sending Christ, our soul deliverer, the only one who could ever take the the weight of of sin, take the punishment of sin. Lord, we trust you um, in everything. Lord, I pray for these students that they would truly submit to you in all that that they do. Um, Lord, if if you need to bring someone to repentance tonight, please do that. Um, Thank you for for this time, and I pray that small groups would be honoring to you and and they would be fruitful. Lord, we love you, and it's your name I pray. Amen. Yeah, I'm gonna get you right out of the small group. I just wanna make two announcements, two really quick announcements. First one, middle schoolers.